All right, open up your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 9 as we can sit and continue our study through the Lord's ministry. <clears throat> Today's topic is on the way down from the mount. And uh, this is an answer of prayer because I walked out of here last Sunday thinking I was so excited to, to teach on the transfiguration. And I didn't get to say half of what I wanted to say, even though I covered the whole outline. It felt like there was more to be said. And as I looked ahead to the next set of uh, verses, I realized, well, we still got to come back down from that mountain. So there's still plenty to talk about here. So we'll look at Mark 9, verses 9 through 13. And it parallels with Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 through 13. And again, the title of this message is On the Way Down from the Mountain. Starting with the Mark 9 account in verse 9. It says, And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them, and this is James, John, and Simon Peter, that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And we made reference to this last week. We didn't read that verse, but we made reference to the fact that what happened, though it's attested by five different accounts, because John also uh, mentions this in, in, in his writings, Simon Peter mentions it in his writings, and then we had the three synoptic gospel accounts, that it wasn't even brought back up until after he was risen from the dead, as commanded by the Lord. And they kept that saying, as it says here, with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must come first, or must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Now if you consider the Matthew 17 account, which also begins in verse 9 and ends in verse 13, it says there, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Let us go ahead and go to the word, Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we read these texts, Father, we ask that you would remove all distractions, all hesitations from our approach to your word, that you would give us immediate application, that you would give us understanding or a burden to study and seek out and be able to mark in our Bibles, try it and prove it, that these aren't verses that we just pass by, that we understand their significance, that we seek and yearn after their meaning. And again, that we would give it immediate application to our walk. Help us, Father, to take all the messages of this day, all of our own personal studies, even the devotional psalms that Isaac read in the opening, that we take these things to heart as your last gift to us before this Thanksgiving, that we would consider these things and what it is that you would have for us to do. And as we approach a new calendar year, Father, that we would look at service differently, that we would look at service as reasonable, expected, and primarily the most important thing that we have any involvement in. Help us, Father, to do away with the things that we are to be ashamed of, to put you first and foremost in our thoughts, processes, and lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this text, there's really just a few things to consider, and, and it really is part two, in a lot of ways, to our study on the uh, transfiguration here at the Mount. We have three points 
why Moses and Elijah, the statement, Elias is indeed come, and then really an assessment of just how much it was that they had to take in. So let us first start with why Moses and Elijah. Before going too far into this next set of verses, I want to discuss a few details of the transfiguration from last time that may prove profitable to us going forward. Because again, we're, we're in this study, we're on a journey. We're looking chronologically at the Lord's ministry. And this is a very significant event that took place. And for us in this study, it took place in a moment of time. And, I, and that probably sounds ridiculous, but as we study these things and we note, okay, a transfiguration happened in the Lord's ministry, and we just note that it happened. But we have the benefit in this study of noting when it happened in the Lord's ministry and noting who was exposed to it, what, what echelon of the disciples had privy to this actual experience. And we can note that they were told to keep it classified, if you will, until a certain point of time. Consider first Malachi chapter 4. In the entire chapter, I'm just going to read the whole thing. It says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that, sh that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall." Before I go on, I should point out that sun is still capitalized, but it's spelled S-U-N. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts, remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, another mount, for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So this is just one occurrence of this very prophecy that the disciples are citing here. Why are they saying that Elias shall come? And if you look back at our text, they specifically say the scribes are saying this. In both accounts, why say the scribes that Elias must first come? Scribes aren't necessarily wrong, but the scribes weren't necessarily known for applying prophecy to those actual events that were happening. The scribes, as lawyers, were interpreting the scriptures. They were telling the folks what they needed to know. Uh, as a Catholic, I remember my grandmother getting those little missalettes every quarter, and it told the Catholics what they needed to know. Told the Catholics, and, and as I got older and started looking at it, it was a script. I mean, if you took it to the, to the masses with you, you knew when to stand, when to sit. You knew what they were going to say word for word, uh, except for the, the creative little homilies that the priest would try to say to, to connect the scripture to his life experience, the life experience of one who didn't have a job, didn't have a wife. Uh, we could go on and on all day. But understand here, it's the scribes that are saying this. The scribes weren't wrong. This is what it says in Malachi, but they also weren't interpreting what was going on in the world around them. Moses represented the law, Elijah the prophets, both of which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, 
when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Consider Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27, which says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. These two uh, are, are leaving uh, essentially from the tomb where the Lord Jesus had been buried. I know we're jumping ahead in the study, but I want you to consider the conversation that's about to happen. I want you to have reference to who these two are. And it says here, and it came to pass, and as the, the writer, Dr. Luke, in this uh, instance, uh, he reveals to us that it's Jesus, but it's not revealed unto these two that it's Jesus. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, where we're at in our study, that's not unheard of. He's a teacher, but he's dead in the context of this verse. Jesus to the world was no longer alive. Now, literal sense, he's already been suffered, died, and was buried, and rose again. And he's come to them in their conversation. Their eyes were holding, Dr. Luke says, that they should not know him. They could see him, perceive that he's a person, but they were not going to be able to figure out that he was Jesus Christ. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Are you new here? Is essentially what he says. Hast not that ha and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. I want to stop there for just a moment. Uh, if you mark your Bibles, you might want to mark what they say of Jesus. Jesus is essentially teaching them how to witness, and he is uh, as having them witness to them a stranger. They don't know this man. They can't perceive that he's Jesus Christ, but they're about to tell him about Jesus. Now, they, they say in this phrase that he is a prophet, says that uh, he's Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. So they don't have a full understanding. But they're about to talk to a complete stranger about Jesus Christ. Again, we might think out of context, not a big deal. It's what we're supposed to do too. Dive into the setting here. Jesus Christ was just killed, brutally humiliated and killed for developing and... Uh, and, and taking around about the countryside the way, which would later be known as Christianity. This just happened. The, the idea that somebody, us in the flesh, would want to talk about somebody so polarizing. I mean, here, here's an example, and I, I use it loosely because I do not compare him to my Savior. But you're pretty careful what settings you mention Donald Trump in, right? Right? So there would have been some caution here to bringing up this Jesus Christ who was just drugged through the streets carrying his own cross for a lot of it, blood coming out from the thorns pressed upon his head, humiliated and mocked with the purple robe, we'll get into all this in the study later, and then hung upon the cross until he cried it was finished. Never mind the, the, the earth-shattering consequences of what they did and what they actually experienced in the physical sense, which we're going to get involved with all of that pretty soon. That just happened. 
They don't know who this guy is. Well, why wouldn't they be suspicious this is a, a, a Roman garrison? Or, or perhaps even a scribe, Pharisee, or Sadducee trying to trap them in their words. They did it to Jesus all over this map. They were burdened to tell this story. Even though they didn't have a full understanding, they were burdened as babes in Christ, if you will, to tell this story. I don't think we should take lightly that so soon after those events, they're willing to just talk to a stranger about it. We'll go on. They talked about how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre and found it even so as the woman had, had said, as women had said, but him they saw not. Then Jesus said unto them, O fools! and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. See, he has an invested interest in perfecting our understanding. These were faithful men, faithful in telling a total stranger about this Jesus Christ and not hesitating, if you'll note, to point fingers to who put him on that cross. They mention names, if you will. But he refers to them as fools, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, which is the reference directly to this text. Why Moses? Why Elias? Beginning at Moses, which represents the law, as we've referenced, and Elijah references or pictures the prophets, and that's where he goes to next. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't know how long that sermon was, but he covered a lot of ground. A lot of ground for just two people. So when we say, I don't know that I could go door knocking. I don't know that I could talk to a stranger about the gospel. I don't understand all there is to know. And you probably don't. I don't. Understand that the Lord has promised to meet us working in the fields right where we're going to be faithful not at following darkness but following the light he perfected their understanding we're so afraid perhaps of embarrassment maybe even afraid of these words oh fools and slow of heart to believe but that's the truth that's the truth we are fools and slow of heart to believe we reject things constantly that the prophets have foretold that scripture makes clear we embark and take part in things we shouldn't have anything to do with, probably every day, but quite often in the next 31 days that we know we shouldn't be involved in. We are fools. We are slow of heart. We, I wonder how often we talk about the fleece, the turning of the fleece, and think, what a chump. You wouldn't just believe the Lord. He lays the fleece out, requires the water to fall here but not there lays the fleece back out again and now requires it to be there but not here but how many we, we go out there twice as many times maybe a dozen more times doing the same thing okay lord but you haven't done it on a tuesday but how about a thursday in the evening we do the exact same things 
These two faithfully told a story that would have been pretty dangerous to talk about. And it just so happened they were talking to the Lord Jesus. In our text from last time, Moses and Elijah discussed with our Lord his decease or departure or exodus, as that word is also translated, that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. And I, I may have referenced last time it was the first time he said it was Jerusalem. I, I, I did so in error. He, this is at least the second, maybe the third time that James, John, and Simon Peter would have heard it. But again, they're the only ones of the 12 that would have heard it this time around. The cross is the theme of heaven's conversation and of heaven's praise. If you'll turn with me to Revelation 5, uh, we'll see that, that it, it doesn't just expire here and it doesn't just exist during his earthly ministry. Revelation chapter 5, and I know Steve has read this recently, probably in the last month or so, but it'd be good for us to revisit it. We see the book sealed with seven seals here in Revelation 5, and just pay attention again to what the conversation of heaven is. Revelation 5, verse 1, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne of a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept, John speaking, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book neither to look thereon. I want to stop for a minute. We talked earlier about how none are righteous, no, not one. When it says no man was found worthy, that includes you. Do we get that? When we talk about total depravity, it's easy to kind of, oh yeah, we all fell. No man's worthy. Even here, in a revelation of future events, no man is worthy. We have to wrap our heads around this if we're to understand salvation. In verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, fear not, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Verse 4, John is bawling. He is weeping much, the text says. Fear not, weep not. There is one but worthy. Praise God! There's that excitement again. That plan that we talked about last Sunday. There is one. You know how many we need? One. There is one worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. He hath prevailed. It is finished. It is finished. We are victorious. For one is worthy to open the book and loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders. Think back to Genesis 22 before I finish this verse. The Lord will provide himself a lamb, Abraham tells to his son. His son, who may be Isaac's age, a young man, who's about to be taken up and bound and set above the fiery judgment of God himself. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Stood a lamb as it had been slain. So having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And again, 
Remember, we're reading this, looking to see what the conversation in praise of heaven is. Verse 9, they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. The Lord is our judge, our lawgiver, our king. He did save us. In Isaiah, he will. Here we see he did. He saved the elect. If any could be lost, wouldn't that be referenced here? If he had failed, wouldn't that be referenced here? He did not. He will not. What a glorious truth. So rejected by man. The second thing for us to reference here is the Lord's words in our text. Elias indeed is indeed come. Elias is indeed come. And, and we've got a lot of references to this, so I'm going to run through a, quite a few of them. In a spiritual sense, John the Baptist was the Elijah promised to Israel. From our text we see, But I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. I want us to have a better understanding of this. Malachi 3.1 Malachi writes, he's a prophet under the burden of the Lord to write, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Praise the Lord. Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17 says, But the angel said unto him, here's that word, those words again, Fear not. Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias." to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In Malachi, it was prophesied someone, and, and it was what, Malachi 4 that we just read? Yeah, Malachi 4, someone would come to do that very thing. And here, the angel says it is John the Baptist. That is the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. That is who they're rejoicing over here. He is not the Lord. He is not even worthy to latch at his shoe by his own words. But he was sent forth to prepare the way. He was used mightily of God. We read throughout the ministry of Christ that he had disciples that were following him as he pointed to Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. Elias is in Elias. Elijah is indeed come. This, uh, I hate to use the word spirit in this particular sense, but this type of Elijah, this use of an Elijah-like um, 
person or persona was John the Baptist. This was his role to prepare and make straight the way of the Lord. Warren Wiersbe wrote, Christ in his transfiguration assured them that the word would stand and the kingdom would come. The scene is actually a picture of the kingdom. Christ glorified, the three apostles representing the redeemed Israel, Moses representing saints who died in Christ, Elijah representing saints who were raptured, for Elijah did not die, he was translated, and the multitudes at the foot of the mountain representing the other nations. So Elijah is indeed come. The last thing for us to consider before we close is that there's a lot for these disciples to have taken in. And we referenced this last time, but there's a lot for us to take in from this event as well. As we discussed last time, these three disciples were likely to have been very overwhelmed by what had occurred. And again, in context, Simon Peter had just gotten rebuked in front of the church, in front of not just the 12, but all that the Lord would have considered to be his church at this time. He was rebuked for telling Jesus, you don't need to die. You don't need to suffer and be humiliated. We referenced it this morning. You're the supreme uh, ruler of the universe. You're God, 100%. And man, sin of the Father. You are the Messiah. That was three lessons ago. This all just occurred. He was rebuked for doing so. Get thee behind thee, Satan, Jesus says. He's addressing that wicked one that Simon is allowing to speak from his own mouth. And then this happens. And for so many of us, we'd probably say, why was Simon Peter even invited James and John, who will later try to call down fire, not knowing the situation, not knowing what they ask for. No doubt they would have been overwhelmed by what they experienced on the top of the mountain that day. But there's one more detail to consider, just to at least make a note of it in the back of our minds. Mark 9, 10 in our text says, and they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising from the dead should mean. This has kind of been lingering for quite a few of our lessons now. Uh, it's really only been addressed when the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been involved, or the scribes, uh, as that's one of the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One believes in the resurrection and, and believes in that sort of thing, and the other does not at all. And it's something that Paul will use against them later in the book of Acts. But anytime it's been brought up, it hasn't really been brought up by the disciples. It's only really been brought up by those outside of the church, and the Lord has addressed it. Uh, when they've required a sign, when they've required evidence, when they've required uh, proof of authority, the Lord has addressed it as he's seen fit. This is really the first time we see them mumbling to themselves what this means, this rising from the dead. Here we see revealed that the disciples still struggled to believe in a resurrection or possibly his death at all. I mean, we have the benefit, again, of time and understanding and hopefully having faith in the fact that he did suffer, die, and was buried and rose again. They had never seen something like that before. Some of them, for probably their, most of their lives, have been brought up to believe the Messiah was going to come to free them from taxation and oppression, not from the sin debt, not from eternal hell and damnation. Not that he wouldn't deliver that as well, but that's not necessarily what they would have been looking for. So the idea of here he is and believing that this is him, it probably would have been really hard to also conceive that he could die. I mean, we, we again be, belittle the disciples in many ways saying, well, they never believed this and Thomas wasn't there and he had to put his finger in his... Well, of course he did because we're fools 
And we're slow to understand and slow to believe and slow to have faith. Of course he did. Raise your hand if you've seen someone come back from the dead before. Not a one. Would you not need some kind of evidence if you were to believe such a thing? So I don't necessarily want to say that it's a good thing that they're murmuring about this, but I want us to understand that these are men, fishermen, these three in particular, Andrew as well, but not here for this, of course. This would have been a lot. And though they've heard the Lord talking about a resurrection, they're still struggling with the idea that he would die at all and certainly not wanting him to. And again, I'm making reference to Matthew 16, so I want to read it. This is where Simon Peter tried to stop him. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. We, we went over this a few weeks ago. <coughs> it says there in Matthew 16, 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem. And this is the first time he says he's going there. To suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And, now he's mentioning the resurrection, and be raised again the third day. That third day which we read earlier of those two witnesses that talked to the Lord Jesus about himself. <laughs> then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And we kind of cruised past this when we went through it before, but understand we would have probably responded the same way if we responded at all. Most likely would have responded the exact same way. If we believe this to be the Messiah, if we believed he called us off our fishing boats to follow after him, called us out of our publican tax-collecting booth, our tabernacle, if you will, to the world, and said, follow after me and I will make you fishers of men. And then started talking about dying. If we really believed he was God, would we want this? Would we comprehend this? Now, the rebuking is fitting, and that's how I taught it when we went through it. The Lord was right to rebuke him, and he did it publicly. That was the exact point of that lesson, is that everything he did was exactly what he should do, exactly what we should do as a church concerning discipline and addressing the truth. Where Simon Peter is, though, is he is savoring this experience. Savoring the pleasures that we talked about earlier and not the love of God. Loving pleasures and not God. This is God. And though it's a good thing, what's the first thing he does at the top of the mount? It is good that we're here. Let us build tabernacles. In other words, let us stay. Let us dwell a tabernacle for you, tabernacle for you, as Oprah and Tom Cruise would say, everybody gets a tabernacle. Everybody stays and we enjoy this forever. And God says, hear him. That's what God the Father literally says. Hear him. Listen to him. Jesus' rebuke was that he savored not the things of God. Our time together might be short in this life. Don't know how long I'll be here. Certainly thought I'd have been in temperance a lot longer than I was. I don't know. I may be here for a hundred years if the Lord desires. But our desire should be to savor the things of God. Not the things that we enjoy. Not the things that we desire. I love Pizza Hut pizza. Made reference to it a couple of times. I can only savor it so long. But you know where that's going. 
There are good things for us to enjoy in this life for a moment. But God himself is for all eternity. And if we're saved right now, the beginning of that enjoyment is now. What was it that the angel said to Zacharias that we just read? You will have joy and happiness. Now, the angel didn't talk about the platter, didn't talk about what was going to happen to John at the end of life. But let me spoil it for you. We all die. It's all going to end. If we're saved, we're going on. We're going to exist in a different plane. We're going to exist with God himself. We're not staying here forever. These temporal joys that Peter wanted to hang on to, Jesus had to say, hey, 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 focus on me. Focus on what we're talking about here. Remember the bread? This has really kind of been the same lesson since that leaven lesson. The Lord was teaching them possibly the most important truth, even for Baptist churches today, that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And the whole time their minds whispered, we didn't bring bread. He's talking about bread. We're not going to be able to do another miracle on bread. There's no bread. How can we forget the bread? This is Jesus. We forgot the bread, Isaac. What are we going to do? Shame crept in. The whole time they missed the lesson on leaven. Jesus is still, once again, pay attention, pay attention. I'm right here. And I'm only here for a limited amount of time. Which is, again, what happens in the transfiguration. We're not staying. Elijah and Moses didn't even look to the men. We're not going to be here long. But now they hear a heavenly conversation about the same lesson Jesus was teaching right there when Simon Peter interrupted and said, no, yeah, that doesn't have to happen. This is what he told them in Matthew 16. The same resurrection that at least Thomas could not believe without proof. John 20, verses 24 through 29. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which means twin, not doubter, was not with them when Jesus came. My wife told me last Sunday that I give the disciples a hard time, and maybe I do, but I'm a Thomas defender. And Marv could probably attest to this. Uh, I defend Thomas because I probably would have doubted more than Thomas. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus revealed himself the first time after his resurrection. Of course he doubted. I would too. And sure there was shame when the Lord said, put forth thy finger. But the Lord said, put forth thy finger. It was his to say. He came just so Thomas could see that and experience that, which is the same that he did for the other men of the church. It says right here in the text, John 20, verse 25, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were with him, and Thomas was with them this time, and came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. We don't see in the text that Thomas ever put his hand in his side. And I don't know if he did or didn't, but he believed. And they didn't phone up Jesus or uh, text him on Facebook or whatever and say, hey, you know, Thomas doesn't believe. You need to come on back and present yourself. Jesus knew word for word what Thomas had said. Jesus knew the doubts and fears of Thomas's heart. He knows yours as well. This very hour, 
He knows exactly what you're thinking, exactly what you're concerned with. Let us not convince ourselves that these same struggles are not real for us as well. Hear the Savior once again from our text. If any man will come after me, this is just from a week or two ago. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his, soul, his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. This mountaintop experience was so precious to James, John, and Simon Peter. It was told to all the disciples after the resurrection. It was recorded five times in Scripture as something that occurred. And not only are so many accounts of it happening, but we know the conversation and the praises of heaven after reading Revelation 5. We know that Elijah and Moses were there, that God the Father was there. This was a moment in time when those outside of time came into one place. There's not enough time to even talk about how amazing that is. Not even enough time to talk about how these two dead men, because Elijah and Moses were men, were brought forward out of the kingdom in, in this manner to converse with Jesus Christ. Or the fact that these three measly fishermen were permitted to bear witness to this conversation. These are bigger things than us. Such are the evils of this world. These are the good things and they're way bigger than us. Imagine the evils, the spiritual warfare that we're called to armor up for. It's way worse than we can see. It's way darker out there than we can even imagine. If you are not bearing the armor, you are not equipped. You are not equipped for what lies ahead. I urge you to repent today for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 